My wife is supposed to be here. And my daughter. Something happened. I left the house early. Let me turn this off. I, um, I hate to be the bearer of, of bad news, but uh, I got a TM from uh, Robert Stacy uh, about an hour ago. And he said, I'm in a bad way, migraine coming. Are you able to do without me tonight? And so uh, I TM'd him back and said, I can handle it for a fee. And uh, he TM'd me back and said, anything up to half my kingdom. So uh, not quite sure which dog or child that means. But anyway. <laughs> uh, okay. And we're going to try this evening using the microphone when there are questions. And if, uh, if people um, at the question time want to come in and sit right on the edge so they can lunge at the microphone, that's fine. That'll, that'll work, too. The microphone is, that microphone's turned off. Three seconds. That won't give you any feedback or anything? Okay. Let me... Uh, And a red light is good? Yes. Okay. Yes, we had them for dinner. Yeah. Okay. That, that's all right. We allow yakking. Yakking is good. Well, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can come to you again tonight and gather around your word and we can think your thoughts after you. You are good and a great God. You are so great and high and holy that you have no need of us, but you have been so kind as to set your love upon your people, to call them out of darkness into light, uh, to send the son of your love to us uh, that we might know of the love of God. We thank you that you have spoken to us in your son, the word, and that he has spoken to us in human language, and that even the prophets and apostles of old are his servants, and so they speak to us in terms that we can understand. We ask, O oh Lord, that you might help us to think about your speaking to us, and that our hearts might be lifted up, and that we might enjoy you forever and give you glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome. Uh, this is our second lesson on the doctrine of Scripture in the School of Theology. And uh, it's good for everybody to be back together again. You know, uh, the last time we met, I was afraid that uh, maybe this was a providential indication we should be studying the Noahic Flood because uh, that seemed to have hit right before, uh, right before we all got together. Uh, but the night is beautiful this evening. Uh, the doctrine of Scripture is important to us, and we looked last time at uh, the study of theology in a run-up to the topic of general revelation. And uh, the diagram in slide number two here uh, reminds us that God speaks to us in, along two different lines. One is his general revelation, and the other is his special revelation. Now, um, it's not a problem uh, it's okay. You can sit on uh, you can sit on either side this evening, and it's not that you only get general revelation and you only get special. Both come to us, 
And uh, we're glad that uh, the Lord speaks to us in stereo in this fashion. In other words, he speaks to us through uh, the world around us. He uses that as an as a medium, as an occasion through which to communicate some basic facts to us. And the Apostle Paul has made that abundantly clear, for example, in the book of Romans, where in Romans chapter 1, he speaks of the God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men in Romans 1 in verse 18. And he speaks directly to knowledge of God being given to us because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. And so the fact that God has communicated to us and given us a basic knowledge of himself as a grounds on which we can be held responsible is is clear. But he gives us even more detail in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And then he goes on to talk about that we knew God on this basis. So our heavenly father reveals through the realm of nature, through the created order, through the sky, through the clouds, through the trees and the lakes and the land, he speaks to us who is the creator through that medium. Yes, it bears his fingerprint in that he is the creator and has made it. And it is putty in his hands. He uh, shapes and molds the created order in in his continuing providence as it suits him. But even beyond those two things, God communicates to our minds, to our hearts, uh, to ourselves that he exists, that he is divine and eternal and has divine attributes that we do not have, even though what we have is patterned after them, and that we know these things clearly, and therefore, on the basis of a knowledge of God and something of what he's like, we can be held responsible for our unrighteousness and our ungodliness and our suppression of the truth. We know God, but yet we don't always honor him as God, according to verse 21. And so general revelation of God is a level ground that all men enjoy. Everyone you ever meet, no matter how old or how young or, or what they're dressed like or, or, or what their uh, hair is cut to be like or what uh, cultural background or mother tongue they come from, uh, you share something in common with every other human being on the face of the planet. And that is that you know God. And in knowing God, you have something in common. And that you know that, that God has certain character. And you know, by contrast, that you don't live up to that character. You know, you each know that you're in need of God to save you. There's a basic knowledge of God that comes uh, generally through this created order. Uh, so the means is that this creation, uh, com- this communication takes place through the world. Uh, The heavens declare the glory of God, he says in Psalm 19. The content is that we can know something of God who otherwise uh, could not be known lest he speaks to us, uh, first in this way and then through his prophets and apostles. The Godhead reveals his godness to us. And so this is good news uh, for every Christian. Uh, It is good news 
uh, for every human being, except the atheists who want to deny it and suppress it and twist it and act like God doesn't exist at all. They're lying to themselves, and they're making their bad situation worse rather than recognize him for who he is and falling down before him. Uh, There's a perspicuity, we said, to this general revelation. That is that it's seen. It's clear. There's something clearly communicated. There is knowledge that is imparted. It's not just uh, sounded out by God and never received. It's not that uh, our um, AM radio transistor radios are broken and we can't receive it and therefore we know nothing of God. He gets across that divide and that gap and communicates to us. Clearly seen, the Apostle Paul says. And that's in direct contradiction to uh, philosophical claims otherwise by Kant and others. Uh, Calvin says rightly, our stupefaction is never so complete. Our, our, our punch drunkness, as it were, our stupidity is never so complete uh, as to prevent us being dragged occasionally before the tribunal of God. We know something of God that is true and therefore are responsible. Men hold the truth, but they also hold unrighteousness, according to verse 18. They also hold uh, ungodliness. They also hold suppression of the truth. We are able to hold the most contradictory things in tension together. God, on the one hand, in true knowledge of him, and then our own self-centered, mindless, irrational, heartbreaking ways. Both of those we can hold at the same time. Apples and oranges. That's an insult to apples and oranges to do that comparison. Uh, We can hold uh, a beautiful, uh, wonderful snowflake in one hand and a consuming fire in the other. Two complete opposites. God, knowledge of him, and then our own unrighteousness at the same time. This truth of God is clear. And uh, there's a consequence to it. We're held responsible We stand before God broken because we're sinners and under his wrath because we know something of him and what we should be like. And this revelation of God is also insufficient because it can tell us something of what God is like. We we can learn of God even by looking in the mirror and seeing something of his handiwork and that he has made us. And we can feel our need of him. But yet at the same time, this general revelation reveals to us nothing of the plan of salvation. Uh, We can't stare at the sunset and come to the knowledge that God would be so great as to send his son into the world to save us. Uh, We can we can look at the sky reflected on a lake and we can feel the beautiful, uh, refreshing breeze. And and we can even enjoy the tug on the line of a of a bass or a catfish as we catch it and reel it into the boat. And all of those joys and all of that enjoyment of creation and knowledge of God that is conveyed in Uh, through those things, will not tell us that we are outside of the boat of God's salvation and we need to be uh, in the boat of his Son, who's become incarnate, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus' name is not known through creation. There's no cross up uh, formed by the stars that radiates to us the covenant of grace. That, That just doesn't happen. And so... We are broken, sinful, and in misery because of the insufficiency of general revelation. This this means that if God had not sent us men like Fred Greco, we would be lost. If God had not sent men like Moses and like David and like Paul and John and Barnabas, we would be without hope. It shows us the importance and value 
of listening, yes, to what God tells us through the created order, but also listening very carefully to his word and reading our Bibles and holding them dear. It's very important that we recognize that we need these both, both of these kinds of knowledge because general revelation won't save us in itself, and we need both. There's a connection between the two. You see, it's not that general revelation is somehow second class. It, it's from God, and so it's important. We need to know it. And it provides a, a context and basis on which we can begin to understand the special revelation. We, we know what things in creation are. We, we know what God, that God is there and that he is not silent and something of what he's like that leads us, uh, even draws us to pay attention to his special revelation. And so we come to the topic this evening of special revelation itself. It's special versus general because it has a very special content. You know, you can go down uh, the cookie aisle at the grocery store, and they've got a section always of the cookies, and it's kind of those generic brand cookies. That's where we tend to buy from in our family, those generic brand cookies. And, uh, you know, some of them are so hard you can, you can drive nails in with them. And uh, it does feel like once you've seen one or tasted one, you've tasted them all, haven't you? And then you go a little farther down and you get to all of the marketing it's so beautiful. They've got pinwheels, and they've got Oreos, and they've got uh, moon pie. They've got everything that you could ever want and dream of there. You see, they've got kind of the general stuff, and then they've got the really special stuff. Uh, God generally speaks to us, but he also has special communication that he gives because the topic is so important. Psalm 25 and verse 14 speaks of the secret of the Lord, which is revealed, the Apostle Paul tells us, this mystery back in the Old Testament. How is it that God is going to save? And, and who is the one who comes as a Savior? Who, who is the one who is the seed of the woman who's promised from of old? Who is it that will save us? That question being asked in the early chapters of Genesis after the fall, the first child, well, maybe, maybe this child will save us, or, or the next child, or the one after. Which, which is the seed of the woman that's going to save? And the mystery which was held back is revealed in the New Testament in Jesus Christ our Lord. Down through the ages, God progressively revealed this special content in shadow form in the Old Testament, but then face to face in the New. And this is a special revelation because it's addressed to a special audience. God's general revelation is addressed to absolutely everybody. Uh, There's nobody that can rightly say, well, I don't believe in God. He's never said anything to me. Well, he has. He's spoken to you very clearly. An apostle has looked into your heart and every other human heart and has rightly said, you know. But then there's this special audience. We like to spoil our children, don't we? It's fun to uh, find a way to pull a little bit together, save it up, and then to get some little special something for them and give it to them. And just to see the delight on their face. We've come through Christmas not so long ago. And it's just fun to give gifts, and to, especially when they're very young. They, they rip and tear those things open. They're, they're just excited to, to open that box and see what's inside and then play with the box. 
Special revelation is for a special audience. And, you know, I can watch a thousand children from a thousand families uh, open things and enjoy them and, and the delight on their face. But, you know, when it's your own children, there's just something extra special about that. And so God has a special set of communication that he gives intended for his children. Now, others get to overhear it, but there is a special constituency. The New Testament makes it clear to us that that special group is from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. God discloses himself as a saving God to his people down through the ages. And there's some special forms, a special form of this special revelation. Uh, You know, theologians talk in terms of act revelation versus word revelation. And word revelation is fairly straightforward. Adam, where are you? Act revelation is a little different. It's not verbal, per se. It's God doing something, like the burning bush, or, or like parting the Red Sea, or God raising someone from the dead. Those are two different ways in which God communicates to us. One by an action, another by a word. And sometimes people will try to rip these two things apart. God does them together. Not only does he part the Red Sea, but he says, okay, now, walk across it. Moses, pick up the staff and go. I'll hold off Pharaoh and his armies, and y'all, y'all go ahead and get to safe ground. God speaks as well as acts. And if we try to divide these too much, we get into all sorts of trouble. Because, for example, what is the most ultimate act of God in all of history filled with such importance and meaning unparalleled to any other act? I mean, parting the Red Sea is a big thing, but what's bigger than parting the Red Sea? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Calvary is an absolutely breathtaking ultimate moment in the life and history of the world. And say you didn't have a New Testament, you didn't have a Bible, you never heard a sermon, and you're standing there watching them drive nails through this guy's hand. He's got crown of thorns on his head. He's bleeding. He's suffering. They put the post up in the ground, and you can now read the inscription, King of the Jews. What do you think? What interpretation do you make of this? Act revelation is great, but only act revelation leaves you scratching your head. You might think a number of things if God hadn't spoken to us. You might think, well, that no good criminal is getting what he deserves. You might be a little bit more human and think, man, he's in a lot of pain. This is an awful thing. I don't know if I can watch. You might recoil from the grotesqueness of it all. If somehow you understood this to be the very Son of God, you might come to the conclusion that this was proof ultimate that God was a monster, that he would slay his own child, and that you want nothing to do with him. What conclusion can you come to just watching the act? You need the word revelation to help you interpret the act.
And God gives us many forms of special revelation where these two things are intertwined together. One is theophanies. It's an amazing uh, thing in the Bible to see where God gives an external manifestation of himself. Uh, For example, the angel of the Lord appears. Or God identifies himself to Moses as in Genesis 19.19. I am. Uh, or to, uh, excuse me, to Abraham is I am. Uh, the theophany, appearance of God, an angel of the Lord, uh, one appearance of God in a fleeting kind of way, just for a season, kind of like birth pangs to prepare you, or hors d'oeuvres to prepare you for the main course of seeing the Son of God incarnate in a permanent human form, God and man joined together forever in Him. God reveals himself in the Pentateuch and in Judges in this distinct kind of way. He also reveals himself in visions. Isaiah 6.1 is where the prophet communicates to us, explains to us that he saw a vision. In the vision that he saw, he was in the temple of God in heaven, not, not the one on earth, the one in heaven above, of which the one on earth was but a form. And he stood there and he realized he was standing on the robe of the train of God that filled the temple. There he is standing. God's robe is filling it. That means he's standing on it. He sees the smoke. He, he, he sees the incense, as it were, going up. The scene is overwhelming to him and God speaks to him. And they're dreams. Uh, dreams are frequently given to people that are not believers, do not trust in God, um, are not even regular organs of special revelation like a, an apostle. They'll have a fleeting dream. But yet it's not just any dream. It's a, a dream from God with a word and a truth for them in it. And there's prophecy. The prophet is, in Hebrew, a nabi, and we see examples of that, for example, in Exodus 4.16. An authorized spokesman of deity. One who speaks for the Lord. He gets a message from God, like in Jeremiah 1.7, I will put my words into your mouth. And so his words are in The words of God are in his mouth. One who had to speak, therefore, could not hold back, could not withhold the message. It came forth. It, It must come forth because they are to be transmitters of the truth. They have the message not for themselves. They have it to give to others. And oftentimes that forth telling from God which tells all about Him and and our need of Him and the brokenness of our world includes a foretelling as well ahead of time. God will reveal through the prophet what's going to come up around the bend. Maybe up around this bend. Maybe up around this bend and then a bend much farther down the road seen off in the distance. God explaining about His plan of salvation, preparing us to understand His Son who comes in the world to save us. Four tellings and fourth tellings both 
You know, I, I grew up uh, in a family where one branch of it was very interested in prophecy. I remember an aunt who um, her idea of what to do with an eight-year-old child when they came to visit her home and she was tired and wanted to take a nap in the afternoon was to put a, um, a book interpreting Old Testament prophecy in my lap, set me in an easy chair and say, here, read this until I come back. Um, was I the only one here to ever get those little chick ticks, those little uh, little booklets, little tracks that had drawings of different Bible scenes in them? And, uh, I mean, it wasn't as good as reading your Bible, but it had cartoons, and so it was very exciting. fit in your pocket. You could take it to school. And uh, some of them were just delightful. I can remember, um, I can remember a chick track on the 23rd Psalm, Actually, I have a difficult time reciting the psalm. Um, uh, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I think, it, I think it had two dachshunds on there, one with the word rod and the other with the word staff. You know, like the, the dogs are always going to be with you and comfort you all the way through. And maybe that's why we have, do, have had dachshunds in our home. Uh, these things get deep into your mind. Uh, but they had scary scenes, drawings of... Uh, of angels coming to grab you and take you off to judgment and, and lots of, lots of little pictures of devils, uh, plotting and scheming to come after you. And you know, all of that's true. They do that. But the chick guy, I mean, he could draw them in such a way that you were frightened when you saw them. And for children especially, it was very, uh, very deeply moving. Uh, he had the whole book of Revelation figured out, knew almost every date on which everything was going to happen and showed you scenes of what it was going to look like. I can remember a guy who looked just like Richard Nixon and, and he, he had him right down there in front of the judgment seat of Christ, and, you know, the guy was in a panic. Um, but I can't remember whether that was before or after his election or before or after Watergate. Prophets do not only and always speak about what is to come. They also speak general truths about God. And then another form of special revelation listed here is the fifth on the slide, uh, number four, is... Uh, the apostolic tradition, that is, that God has, speak, has spoken to us through his prophets, yes, but also his apostles of old, uh, those that are chosen by Christ, appointed by him to be the continuation of his foundational ministry, um, selected from among those 12 disciples, 11 of them being sound, one of them needing replacement or two, and uh, they were vehicles of special revelation. Uh, they spoke, they taught, they preached, they counseled, they encouraged, uh, they exhorted. And in so doing, they laid down the basic truths about the person of Christ and the work of Christ, that he's God and man and he, he lives and dies for his people. He, he pays the price for our sins, propitiating the wrath of God and and that as the resurrected Lord, He pours down His Holy Spirit upon His people, gives them all they need for Christian living, is with us every step of the way, loves us because He loves us in His Son, and, and He never will deny His Son. And so He does what is for our good and for His glory, and He ultimately will see us safely home, no matter how hard it is here on earth, no matter how difficult the days that He and His providence ask us to walk through. He does so 
to give his name glory and to honor his son. And even in that, he does us good. And any teaching that contradicts these basic apostolic facts is just not true teaching at all. And so God reveals his plan of salvation, especially through the apostles, but all uh, the prophets, but also through the apostles. And these 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 uh, forms of special revelation can come in different modes. Um, For example, there can be external manifestation on slide five. You see there the old seal of the Scottish church. Can you can you read the Latin Nick Tamen? Consumbatur. And it was not consumed. Uh, it's not referring to the uh, St. Andrew's cross blue and white flag in the background. It's the, it's the burning bush. The bush burned and burned and burned and burned and it was not consumed. It was a miracle. And this burning bush showing us something of the power of God, revealing something to us of, of his self-existent nature that he dwells in his church, And he dwells in his church with power and without diminution of resources. On and on and on is an external manifestation. Another external manifestation would have been the pillar of fire or the cloud pillar by night. God revealing himself in things that we could see and know and understand, but that are conveying to us and are, and are communicating and interpreted to us as part of the communicating part of the plan of salvation. And then secondly, you have internal suggestion. The fellow in the middle there, uh, can you guess who he is? This is a picture, uh, an icon drawn, uh, painted of David, and he is uh, the poet king who found himself with uh, uh, parchment in front of him, And he began to write uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Um, perhaps a better example would be Moses. Easier to understand. God speaking to him and saying, Okay, now I wrote my ten laws down on stone. Now, get your pen out. I've got a few more laws I want to give you. And the whole Mosaic Code was given to him. And he didn't come up with that on his own. God dictated that to him. God communicated that to him so he could write it down and communicate it to us. And so it, it comes uh, by some process, not necessarily God uh, moving his eardrums by moving the air first and, and using a voice. It may have come by God speaking inside of him, internal suggestion in some way. And then you have concursive operation illustrated by the third and largest picture there, Uh, which is the Apostle Paul. I don't mean to say that Paul is greater than David, but uh, the third space was just larger, and I tried to make it large enough for you to see. And uh, there we have the Apostle Paul with a pen in one hand, a quill, parchment in front of him. He's holding his head. He's obviously thinking deeply, probably thinking and praying together, interwoven. And as he writes his epistles to the churches, He's writing what he wants to write, but more fundamentally what he's doing is writing what God wants him to write. God, the Holy Spirit, is carrying him along, is giving him these words. As he himself will describe to his understudy, Timothy, God breathes out. God breathed words. 
are the inspired, the God-breathed word of God. So special revelation comes in a different mode, it's a different set of modes. God doing something externally, which is interpreted in the act. God suggesting something internally, almost as if he was hearing a voice, and maybe he was. And then concursive operation where there's this intertwining of the human personality and in the providence of God and, and his shaping and molding and protecting uh, that human author from error uh, so that they write only what God, the text ends up being only what God himself wanted the text to be. These are the are three major modes of special revelation. And all of God's special revelation has a certain set of characteristics. Uh, first of all, it's redemptive. Special revelation is intended... To save. And it's not just that, it's not just that God has this special revelation come to us, but when they write it down, when it's recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like an epistle or a psalm or a, or a portion of the law, that textual product itself is revelation as well. Because it's there to be preserved. Uh, to hit us over and over and over and over again. How many times do you have to tell your children to turn out the light when they leave the room? How many times do you have to tell them to clean their room? How many times do you have to tell them to eat all their supper? How many times do you have to tell them not to kick their sister under the table? Uh, The answer to each one of those questions is infinity, isn't it? As long as they're children, it seems, we keep having to do it. God gives us his word that his words might not just echo in the air and then dissipate and disappear, evaporate as it were. He gives us his word written to be preserved, to be transmitted, to be passed down, to be enjoyed by a multi-generational audience, and he wants all of his people to hear of Christ as the mediator, the prophet, priest, and king. It's not too much to say that the Bible in your lap is a mighty act of God revealing himself, a mighty saving act revealing himself to us. So special revelation is redemptive. It's good for our souls. It's also propositional. It's good for our minds. God speaks to us in ways that we can understand. The Bible contains an abundance of information. And one of the things you lack in your life is information. You need to know what God's uh, ethical expectations are of you. You need to know how to interpret and understand the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and Pentecost, lest you think the apostles are drunk and it all makes no sense at all. God speaks to us in propositional form. And God in this way tells us about himself and his son. And special revelation is also authoritative. It is God's word and therefore it has God's authority. And it is also progressive or accumulative. 
In the educational process, we hope that we always don't have to go back to first grade. What did you learn today at school? Well, I learned my ABCs. Next day. What did you learn today at school? Well, I learned my ABCs. If this goes on for more than about 26 days, we begin to get a little worried, don't we? If all you learn over and over and over again are basic sorts of things, and you don't ever begin to progress in your understanding and and see the relationship of these things one to another, if you only get the first lesson but you don't get the second, third, and fourth, then something's wrong. God speaks to us line upon line, word upon word, verse upon verse, order upon order, that our information about him and ourselves might increase. There's a progressive character to Revelation. You know, in the Old Testament, they didn't know the name Jesus Christ our Lord. In the New Testament, that's revealed. But in the Old Testament, there's all this preparation for our being able to hear his name and see his face and to come to love him and to enjoy him in a face-to-face kind of manner. In the Old Testament, it's shadowy. It's more descriptive in a more general kind of way. And therefore, what God says in Genesis is added to by what God says in Exodus and in the Psalms and in Jeremiah. And we begin to fill out our picture and understanding of Jesus and what he is like, the one who is to come. And by the time we get to the Gospels, our appetite has been wet. We have the categories laid for us. It's as if all the trees have been chopped down and the wood has been split. And we are now ready to build something beautiful in our understanding because we have enough of the lumber in place in front of us. It's progressive. God builds upon the former, always moves forward without contradiction. And this this process is initiated and controlled by God himself. Now, what that means is is you're going to have a, a few surprises along the way. There will be less clarity on certain things in one place than there are in another. There may even be a lack of clarity in our minds at a certain point in redemptive history. There's very little grasp of the Trinity in the Old Testament. As an articulated doctrine, the details of the Trinity or the theological tales from which we build our understanding of the doctrine what we call the Trinity, um, it's not there in great detail. But by the time we get to the New Testament, we get into the epistles, for example, or into the Gospels, especially ones written a bit later, it is full and strong and clear. We have the Son speaking to His Father, and His Father pouring out, even in symbolic form, in the form of a dove, the Spirit upon Him. Augustine, the great church father, said that the doctrine of the Trinity is more latent than patent in the Old Testament. It's there. There are pieces of it. There are implications of it. We can begin to cotton on to basic things like a plurality in the one true God. Now, how is there plurality? And and believers in 
in times of old must have spent lots of time around the campfire wondering and pondering these things as they gazed up at the heavens. And how can this God be one, but yet he speaks to us in plurality as well. By the time we get to the New Testament, we have the names Father, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We begin to see something of the relationship between them. We begin to see that that Jesus is the likeness and image perfect of His heavenly Father. He reveals Him to us. And that He and His Father are able to pour out the Holy Spirit upon us. And, and that Jesus possesses this Holy Spirit without measure. So it's not just that He has enough for Himself and maybe one, or maybe one other person, but overflowing like streams of water gushing, He is able to provide the Spirit to each and every one as the incarnate Son of God. Another topic would be the indestructibility of the soul. In the Old Testament, the teaching of eternal life was not so clear that both parties of the Jews grasp it firmly. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees knew there was a resurrection. The Pharisees knew that there was eternal life. The Sadducees weren't so sure. And this was a point of major divide between the two and disagreement. Because of the cumulative or growing nature of revelation as God speaks specially to us more and more and more and more and it begins to pile up until we have 66 books, we have a phenomenon known as uh, supersession as well. Where God says something one day and then later that is surpassed later. Uh, some elements gain uh, are given previously are superseded. For example, the tabernacle in the Old Testament is later superseded by the temple. It's not that the tabernacle is bad and shouldn't have been given and the temple should have been given all along. The tabernacle was intended for a certain period of time. And then the temple would come as the greater form, as the fuller fulfillment of what The tabernacle had been what was transient became permanent and ready for the arrival of the son to come and take lordship and possession of his temple on earth. There's even in the New Testament some evidence of supersession. You know, if you don't think about this, then you come to the if you don't think about the principle of supersession seen in the Old Testament, then you come to the New Testament and you might misinterpret Uh, In Acts chapter 2, there's a clear snapshot within the context of a very unique transitionary period, a very pressing and unique set of real needs. Here they are at Pentecost, the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the history of the world. Thousands have been saved. They are being trained by by the apostles in the providence of God to be the first massive missionary force to go out into all of the world even though they themselves don't understand how forcefully God is going to push them all out into the world because they either will go in his kind providence early or 70 A.D. will come and he will push them out of Jerusalem for good and they will have to go. But that pattern of a unique situation in which good men who had property went and sold it so that all of this could be financially supported, that doesn't mean that it's a sin for us to hold property. 
and that it's somehow wrong to have a house and that you ought to have sold it and brought the money to the church because that would be the more godly thing to do. No. There's a supersession that takes place. There's a growth that takes place. There's a regularization of the support by the, uh, of uh, the work of God. By the time we get to the pastoral epistles, we see basic principles on how to support the work of the church. I would argue that in the book of Acts and in, uh, given to us in 1 Corinthians, the phenomenon of speaking in tongues also is in this supersession kind of category. It's not that tongues are evil. It's not that tongues uh, and the time of the apostles as given for that transitionary period that they might have a fullness of spoken revelation uh, beyond what they had of the written record yet until the fullness of uh, the New Testament had come, that they needed further information about the person and work of Christ and, and about the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of the church and, and what the end times were going to be like, that they were, in de- they were in desperate need of that information to survive. And the apostles had not in the providence of God written the New Testament yet. And so when the writings come, And in Hebrews, we hear that God has what? He has spoken in these last days. He has now definitively revealed himself. It's there clearly in the grammar. He's stamping his foot and putting not just a period at the end of the sentence, an exclamation point. And so that which was more shadowy and came as an emergency measure before is now superseded. And there is a priority within special revelation or of special revelation that is important as well. God speaks to us through nature and he speaks to us in scripture. And as we read nature and we read scripture, we have to synthesize these two in our minds. We have to think. And the relationship between the two is complex. But remember that the basic relationship flows from the reality that God speaks to us through the created order on the one hand, and he speaks to us through the prophets and apostles and these different modes and forms of revelation of which we've, special revelation of which we've discussed. So you have the book of nature where you have creation, you can see it, but God's speaking through it as well on its occasion, general revelation, and you have God speaking and revealing word and act revelation through his prophets of old and his apostles in these various modes and forms. And both of these are from God, and so they all go together hand in glove. It's not that the Bible is true and what God says through creation is wrong. It's not that what God says through creation is right, and those those apostles may have been a little fuzzy-headed or fallen asleep. The two are correct, and the two go together. And those two... Ways of God speaking are even ultimately reconcilable with the created order itself. Even geology, even biology, even the molecular fabric out of which you are made, all of it comes from God and therefore is ultimately reconcilable together. But that does not mean that we always understand how to answer every question about how they come together. Some of those questions the Lord has revealed to us. Some things in history he makes very clear in his word. There are historical books in the Old Testament and in the New. But other things he hides away in his providence and tells us that we have to learn to trust him. It's part of our intellectual discipleship to not know an answer to something and to trust him in the dark 
and to love Him still and to serve Him faithfully even though we don't know everything we wish we could. You know, it's great to enjoy a good meal, but you have to wait for the dessert. You don't get to eat the pie first. Ice cream comes last, not first. And in the same way, the Lord holds back some things and the sweet answer to them will be in heaven. And we will sit down with the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world and we will say, Lord, why did you do it that way? And what in the world is the answer to this question that we've always been burdened about? And if he so chooses it, he will then speak and tell us. Or maybe he will smile and tell us we have to wait just a little bit longer. And he will show himself to be Lord. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back together. All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and uh, get back together. I have uh, I've moved our slide back to number four for a little bit of discussion time. Um, I will make no pretense that I have the skills of Dr. Robert Stacy in this area, but I'll shed what light with you I can and uh, hope to be able to solicit you all to shed some light as well. What we want to do is to think practically about, um, about the topics that we've been covering in special revelation, for example, the content and the form of special revelation. Uh, and its importance to us. I want to start asking you this question. Why do you, why do you like your Bible? I mean, I presume that because you're here, you like the Bible. Uh, you have some interest in it. There's something about the Bible that uh, uh, you appreciate. Uh, what kinds of things about the Bible are appreciated by, by the class? It's true. The Bible is true. Truth is very attractive. Uh, We live in a world filled with lies, filled with deception, filled with untruth. Uh, You know, when somebody tells you something is true and it's not true, you can make a fool out of yourself. I I got a phone call earlier this week, and somebody said to me, have you heard about the shootings? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you haven't you haven't been watching the television. And, and I didn't want to confess to him, well, the two TVs in the house aren't working right now, and I can't figure out how to get those boxes to work right, and I'm kind of stuck. No, I said. <laughs> and uh, so I just got on the Internet and Googled, you know, Houston shooting, and up it popped. But as I TM'd a few folks and as, as, I, as I made a couple of phone calls, before I saw it for myself on uh, uh, the BBC uh, Uh, .com website, Uh, before I saw it uh, published there, being broadcast, you know, you kind of wonder, I wonder if this is really true, or am I calling somebody up and they're going to think, what are you talking about? That can't be true. There's no way that's happening. Why are you spreading these bad rumors? There's something beautiful about truth, because you can act upon it. You can live upon it. Uh, You can can hold it dear, and you don't... uh, you don't end up looking like an idiot in front of everybody else because you know it's true. All right? Truth. What else about the Scriptures is attractive? They're very comforting. 
the Bible is comforting. Why, why do you say that? What, what about comforting? What, what, what aspect? What, what do you find comforting about the Bible? You see, I think this is a wonderful, a wonderful example of the fact that God uses his word, his special revelation written in our lives in ways that we know are benefiting us. And we can't even give you all the details of the formula of how and why. That means they're very practical. They're very relevant. They're very deep. Yeah, I, I remember being in the hospital. I had a terrible thing going on inside of me. I will not describe, describe it to you. It would not edify. But needless to say, let me, let me suffice it to say that I actually was as close to death as I have ever been, and I didn't know it. The disturbing thing about it was is I was in a great deal of pain, and I, and I began screaming out for the doctors and nurses. And, and this nurse came, and, and, and I think I grabbed her around the neck. I think that's right, or the... the uh, around the, the coat, and I said, i got to have help. And so she sent off for somebody, and, and, and they came back and said, well, Dr. Rankin, they want you to be in pain to help with the diagnosis. And I just screamed at him and said, it's working. you you got to help me. And so uh, there I was still in pain, and some teaching student, a uh, student teacher or student uh, doctor came in, and he said, well, I guess it would be all right to give you something, and he shot me up with morphine. And, uh, uh, well, I never had that before. I'll tell you, morphine works. I don't understand why, but it works. And um, even though uh, uh, I was just still about to die, it made me feel better, and I didn't much care. Um, the Word of God has brought comfort to me. Actually, bef- before they got the morphine, I had a student standing there, and he began reading the Psalms to me. They, they did exactly what you're describing. It really did help. The Lord worked by his Word in ways I didn't understand. Uh, so the Bible, even having it read, even having portions of it read at a time when you would not even necessarily choose them yourself as an appropriate theme, the Lord can work through his word in very profound ways. We had another question or point here. Yes. Um, truth that affects me personally and gives, and reveals the way in which I have hope. Truth that gives hope. It's beautiful. Yes. I, I can say it's food for the soul. I think that's an apt illustration. All of these. Yes. One more. Chuck said that it's, we can describe it as food for the soul. And I think that's a very apt illustration of the way that God works and builds us and strengthens us and comforts us at the same time. Now, we talk about comfort foods and uh, uh, good nutritious foods. Sometimes those are the same every once in a while. And uh, the God's Word is certainly that way. It gives us the comfort and the strength that we need both. These are all, these, these different aspects and facets of the Bible that you enjoy and appreciate. Um, 
find their root back in the salvific plan of God, that God intends for His Word to be a blessing and a comfort and an aid to us. Because the Bible comes by inspiration from His Son through the Holy Spirit who carried along the apostles and prophets of old. And so these blessings and benefits, even affective comforts that we feel from the Word, are there as a part of that love story of God setting His love upon us because of His Son and caring for us even when we don't even feel like caring much for ourselves. Uh, Believers uh, do not go through lives that are a straight line always up. We find ourselves uh, riding that roller coaster of life up and down. Uh, Sometimes there are tectonic, massive tidal shifts that take place, and all the things around us are just so difficult and bad. Who could but feel their soul a bit downcast. Other times, uh, we plunge because we kind of jump out of the boat and over the edge. And the Lord has to catch us, put us back in. But no matter what the providence of these different occasions, one of the implications of the Lord setting His love on us, caring for us, giving us His Son, providing His Holy Spirit, gifts, fruits, uh, callings, all of these things are part of the evidence that He loves us. I get up in the morning and uh, there before me is evidence of the fact that my wife is a sweet lady and and she loves her husband in spite of himself. There is uh, 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 a nice breakfast. She doesn't wake me up with a wet washcloth like my daddy used to when I didn't get out of bed early enough. (laughs) This may explain a lot in my life, actually, the traumatic ways of early rising. Um, I'm greeted by a smile and a kiss. I'm not greeted by frown and and hatred over the silly things I did the day before or thoughtlessness. Uh, She's forgiving. She's caring. She's concerned. uh, Love in action. Uh, makes all the difference in the home and in one's life. And in the same way, the Lord is that way towards us through His Word. And everything can be crumbling in the world around us, but yet He gives us that lifeboat of comfort and encouragement. He is whispering to us and communicating to our souls through His special revelation uh, that He loves us and He's going to save us. The content of special revelation is relevant to your life. Now, um, we could talk about the different forms of, of special revelation. Um, theophanies, visions, dreams, prophecy, apostolic tradition. Um, we could discuss these in, in more detail, but it will be one day a great and glorious thing to sit down with the Apostle Paul and to hear from him. I, I want to hear him tell me what it was like to write to the, to the Ephesian church that he had loved and cared for for so long, that he ended up investing himself so much in, that he left Timothy there behind in order to comfort and to uh, set on the right footing and, and organize properly for their long-term benefit. I, I want to hear the Apostle Paul describe to me as he put that pen to paper what it was like for the Lord to uh, help him in that concursive operation so that, 
so that he wrote what he intended. How, how long did he ponder over these things? Did they just come to him, or were, they, were there some drafts along the way? Uh, how much red ink was spilled? You know, back in those days, parchment was pretty valuable, and I, my suspicion is, is that with an amanuensis there, you know, he ends up pacing the floor and ends up kind of speaking things, kind of trying to see what the sound of them is. How many times did he revise uh, uh, some of the precious verses? Um, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of works, lest any man should boast. What's your favorite Bible verse? you got 66 verse, verses. What's, what verse means more to you than anything else? It's in John, I don't know which one, where it says no one can snatch us out of his hands. Where Jesus doubtless is holding out his hands and saying no one can snatch us from his hand, given to him by the Father. All right, somebody else, what, what, are, what are some of the passages? What's your favorite verse in the whole Bible? Dave? Romans eight twenty eight. for all things work together for good to those that are called. Now, so, many, so many things in this world, you just wonder about them, but you have to trust God. Such a, such a wonderful um, lesson learned falls out of the bottom of that sieve, doesn't it? Just what you said. You have to learn to trust God. But yet, the basis of comfort is a verse that is a proposition. It's not a feeling. The verse is not a feeling. It's not that the comfort comes to you by just all feeling warm and fuzzy. It's a truth spoken into your ear, into your mind that seeps its way or, or works its way down into your heart so that some profound change in your life can happen by the work of the Holy Spirit through His Word. All things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. God has to get it by His Word, by His propositional truth, through my thick skull, through layers of defense, through decades of denial. That it's not just the good things that are good, in their ultimate use by him. Even the bad things that happen to me, even the hard things, the heartbreaking things, the things that hurt, God uses those for good. And, and I can feel better about that and take comfort in that fact. But then there's even more. Because it's not just the hard things or the bad things. Here we get right on the edge of mystery. But it's still a propositional truth that he's whispering in my ear, shouting in my ear that I might hear it. All things work together for the good. Even the sins I committed yesterday and the year before, even the wrong things I chose and I did, even when I laughed and I shouldn't have laughed, even when I shut my mouth when I should have opened it, even when I loved what was evil and I hated that which was good, no matter what a mess of it I made, all things, all of them, work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. Ultimately, and in retrospect, God, only the way He can, takes even our evil and somehow works it in His providence around and bends it according to His redemptive plan, not so that it's good, but it's so that good comes out of it in spite of itself. And, and that's the aspect of it I will never understand. 
but there's a proposition through which it's communicated that gives me that solid comfort and that lasting joy. So when I get sick, I can cling to that verse, I can preach it to myself, and I can find real comfort in that. And when bad things are done to me, I can take solace and comfort in that. And even when I sin, I have another reason to repent that I need to run back to the arms of the one who doesn't hate me because of my sin. He cleans me up. He washes me. And he even figures out how to take that muck and use it for good. That's something divine. We could never do it. Good. All right, another verse. All of the fathers given to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will not cast out. All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will not cast out. Eternal security from the mouth of the Savior. You know, uh, the great New Testament scholar, J. Gresham Machen, was off on a preaching tour. I'm trying to remember. I think it was in North Dakota. Is that right? I think it was North Dakota. You know, for a long period I didn't time, I didn't believe anyone actually lived in North Dakota. I was, I was even doubtful of its existence because I'd seen license plates from everywhere in the States. I'd seen Hawaii and Alaska, but I'd never seen North Dakota. But I think he was on a preaching tour in North Dakota, and he felt sick, and he died. And his last recorded words were, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Mansion. The great matron, God have mercy on me. And he's standing on that same ground that your favorite verse is. That's wonderful. All right, what's another favorite verse? 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's no sweeter word for a sinner to hear than the word forgiveness, is there? It's great news. Great news for our souls. God uses truthful, propositional statements given through apostles and prophets to give us spiritual, intellectual, and even emotional comfort in time of need. He speaks to the whole man and to the whole woman and makes an impact on every aspect of our lives. No part being hidden from him because his eye sees and knows all. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your need in greater depth and complexity of it than you would, can ever hope to plumb. And his word is able to do things to you that you do not understand. And that's why you need Jesus. Because he can forgive you and he can bring transformation at such a basic level that you will, you will change the way you think and live and feel. He will change you in all those areas. Now, what are some verses or teachings in the Bible that confuse you or frustrate you? You see, it's not as hard to get people to raise their hands for this. I would have to say the verse that (laughs) 
in, I think it's in First Corinthians, and I think it's in the chapter 13 where he's talking about love. Uh-huh. And um, how he, it says love is not jealous. And then, you know, I don't know, some people would say that God is love, so you could add his name where the love part is. Mm-hmm. But it says love is not jealous, but then another scripture would say God is a jealous God. So that one would always confuse me a little bit. All right, and, and, and behind that question is an interesting complex of things. If, it's like if you have a broken alarm clock. Well, see, this is the old mechanical kind, the, one, the kind that you had a chance to fix. You, you, you had a fighting chance to fix that. These electronic things, all you can do is throw them away and go back to Walmart. But with the old mechanical ones, you get out a screwdriver and you could take them apart and you can find the broken bit or you could see the complexities of it and get it back in line. That question involves the issue of deity, that is, what God is like, the attributes of God. And it's not just his attributes, it's also his attributes and action. So the functions, the, the works odd extra of the Trinity, it, it, then is the works externally from God towards not just creation, but sinful, rebellious creation like us. And... Man is made in God's image and parallel to him. And people living in peace with each other and in fellowship versus living as a consequence of their fallenness and struggling back and forth, there may actually be something to be fairly jealous over, for example. And so there are things of God and of man, of the Trinity and of marriage and relationships. The answer to to that conundrum or question is very complicated. No wonder there's a lack of clarity on certain things. That's a good example. How about another doctrine or another thing in the Bible that's confusing or that you don't know the answer to? There are many instances where new believers received John's baptism and then they also received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they talked about uh, sensing being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm almost embarrassed to say that I don't know that I've ever sensed being filled with the Holy Spirit when I was baptized years ago. Um, and I, I, so it makes me wonder, am I truly a... a do I belong to God? Questions of, of baptism as a right. Uh, questions behind that of the work of the Holy Spirit, that that signs and seals. Uh, what there is back in God in loving us and, and sending His Son to save us and, and uniting us to His Son so that we will be saved and, and therefore giving us uh, an overflowing uh, blessing of the Holy Spirit coming through the incarnate Son to us. That whole set of things involves incarnation, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, ecclesiology, worship, symbology. It's, it's a complicated area. And there are multiple layers and facets to it. And so it would not be surprising if the answer to that question was something that if you went back to the time of Ezekiel, or even before that, if you went back to the time of Jehoshaphat and you said, so give me the answer to this conundrum about 
the spirit and public church rights and the connection between the two and and then down to how we feel about them and our remembrance of them and our experience of them, um, he might look at you and say, I, I don't know. Because the answer to that question is so complicated that to have a good fighting chance to answer it, you need both the Old Testament and the New Testament, not just part of it, but all of it. And you're going to have to really sharpen a pencil to be able to, to understand the warp and woof and flow uh, of the New Testament and of redemptive history. That, that's another good example of a difficult controversial you know, why is, it, why is there so much controversy over baptism in different quarters of the Christian church? It's because of the complexity part of what you've described there. And it can deeply bother us. All right, let's take one more. Fred is the guy yesterday who TM'd me back and let me know everybody was okay. So, um, In Genesis 6, 6, it says, ah. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Understanding the attributes of God, how do I work through this scripture? How does God grieve? How does he regret? How does a sovereign Lord regret what he has done? The even more troubling question, affectively and personally for me is, is he going to do that again? And the answer to that question is not given in Genesis 6, 7 or 8 or 9. Just a few verses later, you have to wait and get past. The floodwaters have to subside before you know the answer to that. And to really appreciate it, you've got to do it in not, not just in light of the Noahic covenant, but you've got to wait for the Abrahamic covenant to come. And here, God make a, make a declaration about Father Abraham, who was a pretty silly fellow at times. I mean, what guy would go around saying, She's my sister. What he meant was, she's just my sister. <laughs> that didn't make any sense at all, really, if you think about it. Uh, where is Father Abraham's guts and gusto and um, spiritual umph ump for God? Where, where, where was that? Where was his courage? He looks like a coward, theologically and also personally. He had these great promises from his heavenly father. Yes, he went off into a far-off land, but... When things got a little dark, he got a little scared. How can that be? Um, the Bible is something that comes in a progressive way. Our apprehension of it comes progressively. So even once all the books are on the table, it takes us time to read them and to grasp them and to synthesize and to integrate that with our own personal experience and to begin living the Christian life in light of the word more thoroughly. That's one reason why one of the, the fundamental emphases here at Christ Church is a means of grace ministry. And it's a, it's a simple means of grace. You know, some people have very complex kinds of philosophies of ministry. Ours is fairly simple. It's the word read and the word preached and the word sung and the word prayed and the word seen in the two appointed ways of the two sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's a means of grace ministry. Um, Fred's Italian. He's a little more exciting than I am. Um, I'm Scottish. That means I have a more clever brogue than he does. And uh, you've just gotten the edges of excitement at Christ Church because it's not about us. It's about Christ. And it's about his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our hearts and lives and even our church can be centered 
upon your special revelation and rest there. For even though we don't understand everything, even though there's still things that we wonder about and and we need help on and, and we struggle over, we know that all these things work together for good, for your name and glory and for our good in Christian life and walk. We ask, O oh God, that you would encourage us in the fact that you have spoken to us, not, through nat- not just through nature, but also through the prophets and apostles of old, and that behind it all we might see Christ Jesus our Lord, the very Word of God who became incarnate, the one who is our infallible assurance of your goodness and your truth. Help us to love him and serve him, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to see you all. And let's pray for Bob uh, Stacy that the Lord will heal him, and he'll be back with us next next time we meet the second and fourth Wednesdays. So we will be back together again on February 13th. Very good. Thank you.